Tonight's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Uh, It'll be on page 839 of the Pew Bibles, so I'll give you a moment to find that. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, and she, sorry, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I have entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, Friends, uh, good evening. After a one-week break with a youth service last week, that was fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, With three baptisms and testimonies of God changing lives. uh, Tonight we return to the Jesus Through the Eyes of Women series. And don't forget we have a notice board over there where people have been writing bits and pieces of what God has been teaching them, how God's been encouraging them in this series. And you can do so after the service. But today we look at a story of forgiveness, a story of a sinful woman who was welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. Rebecca McLaughlin, whose uh, book we're based this series on, writes this. We'll see how Jesus treats women who've been vilified as moral trash and how he uses this example to expose the moral failure of the men who judge them. We'll see how Jesus welcomes prostitutes into God's kingdom, while the self-appointed gatekeepers look on in horror, and see how the door to everlasting love with Jesus is wide open if only we come to him. Jesus is going to say some shocking things to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and he did that a number of times. Let me take you to Matthew 21, which sets the scene. The chief priests and the elders questioned Jesus' authority while he was teaching in the temple courts. And Jesus tells them a story. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. The son said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went and he worked. Then the father said to the other son, the same thing. He answered, sir, I will go. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. 
And then Jesus says this shocking thing to them. Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. McLaughlin continues, he says, Jesus' words are scandalous. The tax collectors and the prostitutes were the apex of sinners from a Jewish point of view. Conversely, the chief priests and the elders would have seen themselves as the, as the top of the religious tree. But Jesus tells them bluntly that the Roman sympathizing swindlers and prostitutes, the very people they'd vilify, are entering God's kingdom ahead of them. Why? Because the prostitutes and the tax collectors are repenting of their sin. Indeed, Jesus speaks as if the chief priests and the elders should follow their example. She says, Jesus' words concerning prostitutes are radical to a degree that's hard for us to grasp. His fellow Jews saw prostitutes as sinners to be avoided at all costs, and certainly not as people who might walk right into the kingdom of God. And then she spreads it out beyond the Jewish world to the Greco-Roman world. She says, in the wider Greco-Roman empire, Jesus' comment was, if anything, even more disruptive because Jesus is recognizing prostitutes as valid human beings in and of themselves. Now, some of the things I'm going to read now could be shocking to you. But it's going to take you to the understanding of sexuality in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Tom Holland writes in his book, Dominion, in Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. It's graphic language. Sex with prostitutes was not seen as immoral, but as a legitimate and necessary outlet for male lust. Indeed, as, Christian, as historian Kyle Harper says, the sex industry was integral to the moral economy of the classical world. Prostitutes themselves were seen as literally worthless. The average cost of sex with a prostitute was equal to the cost of a loaf of bread, Harper writes. Further, he writes, the brutal exposure of vulnerable women rested on a public indifference so vast that it lay invisibly at the very foundations of the ancient sexual order. Nobody cared about prostitutes beyond the services they could provide. And Jesus' teaching introduced two tectonic shifts. That's why Jesus was so appealing to women in the first century and continues to be today. Number one, he loved and valued women including prostitutes. He elevated them. He showed them dignity and respect. Secondly, against the norms of the empire, he upheld faithful marriage as the only context for sex. And this started a sexual revolution more daring than the revolution of the 1960s, but in the opposite direction. The modern sexual revolution, we're saying, talking about the 1960s, offered women the right to commitment-free sex, just like men. It hasn't made our world any better. But the sexual revolution that was triggered by the rise of Christianity within the Roman Empire cut out, cut out so men's sexual freedom and called them to a kind of faithfulness in marriage that had previously only been expected of wives. This meant that women could no longer be viewed as expendable objects of male lust. Rather, sex only belonged in marriage. The permanent, God-given, one-flesh union 
of a man and a woman. Matthew 19, verses 46. And Christian husbands were to love their wives with the same kind of sacrificial love that Christ has for his church, Ephesians 5.25. Is it any wonder then that history tells us that women flock to the church of Jesus Christ and they continue to do so today right across the globe? Because in Jesus we had a radical transformation of how women were seen in the first century and they are seen today. And we come today with that introduction to the context of the day, to this story. It's risky love by a repentant woman. I want to take you a little bit back in this story to, to get a sense of what is happening here. Jesus has a growing reputation. On one hand, he is a traveling preacher. He is a healer. He's forgiving sins. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. There are people everywhere. The sinners, the outcasts, they all follow him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, as opposed to Jesus, were the religious establishment. They were honored by the people. They were the keepers of the ancient traditions. They were separated. They tried to be separate from the ordinary people because they were holier than the others. They did not like Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. We have Jesus on one hand, religious establishment, and they don't like him at all. And in a short time, they will want him dead. But at the beginning, rather than expressing their contempt for him uh, outwardly, they did it more civilly. Began with dinner invitations. Hi, Jesus, why did you come to an invitation? Tell us about what you think. Tell us about your teaching, your new ideas. But in their invitations, they were setting Jesus up to condemn him, to show that he is a false prophet, that he is not from God, that he is not to be listened to. Invite, come Jesus to a meal at our house. And the Pharisees expressed their distinction from impurity through an arduous allegiance to ritual purity rules. They go through the various cleansing rules that they followed, but then they also wanted to be an example to the wider crowd. So they would have their meals, invite the, the honored guests like Jesus, but then the doors would be open. So the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all the other people could look in to see what they're up to, could look in to hear what is happening in the conversations. The Pharisees wanted people to come up close so they could teach them the truth about God. Their conduct at meals was also to be an example to the community. There was no coarse language, no frivolous discussion. They were talking about deeply spiritual matters. And Jesus is invited to such a situation. Says when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When they're reclining at the table, it is a formal banquet. Friends, this is a formal event. There are traditional roles of guest and host. You know, if we have a parliamentarian here, sometimes we'll have someone meet them and then bring them down to their seat and look after them, make sure they've got a drink of water, whatever it happens to be. If we have a guest speaker, we look after them. We had a guest speaker on Tuesday night at our transgender seminar. We made sure he had a nice, comfortable seat. We gave him a glass of water. We're pretty cheap. We only gave him a glass of water. But you see, you look after your guest speaker. You're meant to follow, especially in Middle Eastern culture, precisely the role of the host to ensure that your invited guest is honoured and not insulted. 
As they come in, you expect to greet them with a kiss. Much fanfare. Everyone is looking at the invited guest. Everyone's cheering on. And you see, they would recline on low couches around the table in order of rank, leaning on their left elbow with their feet turned around away from the table. Now, I don't know how they did that. I went out to dinner recently with some men in a home group. We sat at a Middle Eastern uh, restaurant in Beverly Hills. They didn't give us seats. We had to sit on the floor. I tell you, my hips weren't, weren't going out and it was tough. But this is what they did then. They'd lean on their elbows, legs back there. But you know what's meant to happen to their feet? The slaves are meant to come through with the water and the towels to wash the feet, to dry the feet. There's no kiss. There's no washing of his feet. And more, they often anoint him with oil. There's no anointing with oil. You see, as Jesus comes into this place, the crowds are noticing that there's no kiss. Put yourself in their position. They're noticing that no one washes his feet. They're noticing that there's no oil anointing him. Friends, everyone's on edge. Let me suggest to you, the people are on edge at the moment going, what's going on here? They're insulting the guest speaker. So something's missing in this scene. The host failed to wash the feet of Jesus. He received no kiss of greeting, nor was he anointed with oil. They are glaring omissions. They are intentional to humiliate Jesus, to mock him and to embarrass him. When I was probably upper primary or early high school, I went to a family function. I I grew up in a Greek family. And so sometimes these functions, all the uncles would be sitting around in a circle. And as we kids come in, you're meant to greet everyone. All the aunties would give you big kisses, and the men too often, but also at least shake their hands. But my father had a falling out with one of the other uncles. And we knew dad wasn't talking to him, but my dad was there and the other uncle was there, and all the other uncles. And as we started to walk around, we shook each hand, we greeted them respectfully, as young Greek kids in a Greek family, we greeted that uncle, and that uncle, and that uncle, and we were looking at each other going, what do we do with the uncle dad's not talking to? And we bypassed him. We did not shake his hand, we went to the next uncle. Everyone saw what happened. Everyone saw that the Gratsunas kids insulted that uncle. It's like that, right here. Everyone knows. It's not just a story, oh, well, you know, no one washed his feet. No, no. This is a serious offence taking place here. And then we're told there was a woman watching all of this. A woman who felt it. Literally, it says a woman of the city who was a sinner. Everyone knew her. Probably a prostitute, as most scholars would say. Known by the people for, from that city where she, she lived. Known by the men, maybe, who slept with her. Known by people who watched her work the streets. But she had heard that Jesus was going to this house. And she was so excited to see Jesus, she turned up to this Pharisee's house with an alabaster jar of perfume. And the assumption of the story is that she's already met Jesus previously and been changed by Jesus. She's already been forgiven by Jesus and she now wants to to meet him and to bless him and to honour him with her perfume. But you see, she's standing outside watching. She's not allowed to go in. These sinners are not allowed into this gathering. She can sit on the outside or stand on the outside watching. But she watches the absence of the kiss of greeting. She watches they don't wash his feet. 
She's getting angry. She's getting emotional. You see, because Jesus has forgiven her. Jesus has given her new life. Jesus has given her respectability. But no one gives it to her. And they're not giving Jesus anything. And somewhere in the story, she's totally overcome by this. And she decides, if no one gives him a kiss, I'll run in and kiss his feet. And if we're in a gathering in someone's home, and this woman walks in, everyone's watching her, where's she going, why is she here? The woman, a woman of the city, a sinner. And she falls at Jesus' feet, starts to kiss his feet, and starts to weep over him. She's stuck now, what's she going to do? She's at his feet, where the slaves normally would be, washing his feet with her tears. I guess Simon is thinking, well, I've got Jesus now. He's got no idea I've got this woman of the city touching him. What type of rabbi is he? What type of prophet is he? What type of religious leader is he? (laughs) Jesus, my plan has worked. But what is she to do? She has no towel. She undoes her hair, which is is a no-no in Middle Middle East uh, communities. She lets out her hair, which is meant to be hidden or kept up undercover and dries his feet. In the Talmud, the Jewish writings, it's indicated that a woman can be divorced for letting her hair down in the presence of another man. It's an intimate gesture. Then she kisses his feet again and again. Then she pours a perfume on his feet. Friends, there is a mess in the house of Simon the Pharisee now. Uh, and the people standing around not going, oh, well, it's just this woman kissing his feet. No, no, they're going, what's going on here? Do you know this person? What's Jesus doing? And Simon, what type of function are you running? You're a Pharisee. We're meant to be pure and holy. It's a mess. His calculated snub of the young rabbi is not proceeding according to plan. And Simon, you get a sense of his heart. Verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Reveals something of Simon's intent of inviting Jesus to his house to test the claim that he is a prophet. But here lies the very crux of the episode and the very point that Jesus would make later. Jesus proved he was a prophet by the very fact that he did see who this woman was. He sensed her repentance. He felt her relief and joy at being forgiven. He saw the outpouring of love from a repentant woman. But Simon didn't see it. Because he's not a prophet. He doesn't have the heart of God. He doesn't understand the grace of God, the mercy of God. He's just religious. And he doesn't see with God's eyes. But Jesus is a prophet. He sees things as God sees them. Simon does not. Michael Frost is a lecturer at uh, Morling College. He's written a variety, a number of books, and uh, I remember a book that he wrote called Jesus the Fool. And in this story, in the book Jesus the Fool, it tells the story of a woman at a church that he was involved in back then. He says the woman had two children and suffered at the hands of a violent husband. They worked with her, they loved her, they told her about the love of Jesus, that Jesus could welcome her into his family, Jesus could change her life. They tried to even help her to get away from this violent, abusive husband, but she kept going back. Then one day, Mike says, she heard a sermon about finding inner strength and new life in following Jesus. She responded to God's love. And they must have had an altar call of some form because the woman got up from her seat. Imagine I invited you. And at the end of the service, she walked forward, head up, chest out, he says. 
like finally she understood the message of grace and forgiveness. She walked to the front, giving her life to Christ, and her life was transformed. Mike says there were two responses to this woman walking barefoot down the aisle of the church. For many, there was great joy for what was happening to this woman. They knew her story. They could see with God's eyes. However, some commented that they were hoping that next time she came to church, she would wear some shoes because she was barefoot. They felt it irreverent to be barefoot in the house of God, they said. And he writes, when some people looked at the woman, they saw repentance, faith, hope and joy and new life. When others looked at her, they saw that she had no shoes on. Some had seen the woman through God's eyes, some through the eyes of formalized religion. So it was with Jesus and the Pharisee. I wonder which way you see. And then Jesus gives a loving commendation to this woman. Simon, I have something to tell you, he says. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Both of them have experienced grace. They, they didn't pay it back. It's just, I forgive you, right? Whatever you've done, I cancel the debt. He's giving a spiritual illustration here. Which of them will love him more? Well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt cancelled. That's like the woman, the prostitute, the woman of the city. And love in a parable is a response to unmerited favour, a response to pure grace. So this woman has already met Jesus previously. And having been forgiven, she, she just wants to express love to Jesus at such a lovely level. This scene is not working out well for the, Simon the Pharisee. Now Jesus turns and speaks to the woman. Conversation having with Jesus and the Pharisees, people are looking and they're, they're chatting. And this woman is still sitting there at his feet. And listen to the language here. Jesus turned toward the woman, looking at her, and said to Simon. I think this is significant. He didn't turn to Simon and say to Simon. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon. That will impact the tone of what Jesus says. Do you see this woman? Jesus is about to lift up this woman, to elevate this woman, to honor this woman for her act of love. Do you see her? Helpless as she is in the middle of a group of men staring down at her. Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I can see Jesus sort of acknowledging her. Thank you, sister. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. I'm with you, he says to her. You do not put oil on my hair, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus criticizes the hospitality of the Pharisee. He does the culturally unacceptable, but elevates this woman. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. In case anyone doesn't get what Jesus has to say, he then says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. They're a woman of the city, a sinner. Your sins are forgiven. I've seen 
in your expression of devotion and love to me, that your sins are forgiven, you are right with God, uh, you, you are a chosen daughter of the holy God, uh, life is different for you, your sins are forgiven. See, Simon failed to rejoice in the salvation of this, of this woman. He couldn't see that she had been changed by Jesus. He only condemned her. But then the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So Jesus now pushes it a little bit further. Simon wanted to know whether he was a prophet. He thinks Jesus isn't because he doesn't recognize that there is this woman there who is a sinner. Well, he knows her very well, that she's been forgiven, been transformed, and she expresses love to him. But more than that, he wants to say to the crowd listening, listen in, I can forgive sins, right? I'm not simply a prophet, I'm not simply a great rabbi, I'm not simply a healer, I'm the one who does what God does, and God alone does, which is forgive sins. I have come from heaven to earth. Now, I wonder later they accuse him of blasphemy and want him dead, because he claims to do only what God can do, which is to forgive sins. Friends, the cross and resurrection will show us the ultimate grace of God in its fullest sense. Jesus dies in our place so that we can be forgiven, have a new start in life. We're going to remember that in the Lord's Supper in a moment. Our only hope of salvation is to repent and believe in Jesus, just as this woman did. And in verse 50, Jesus again affirms her. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, words of truth to this woman. McLaughlin says, how do we see Jesus through the eyes of this repentant sinner, prostitute? Firstly, we see him as the only man who welcomes them, not for what he can get, but for what he can give. We see him as the one who does not count their history against them, but who knows each detail of their past and welcomes them into his stunning future. Friends, isn't that so good? God knows our past, he knows our sins, he knows our failings, and he welcomes us in to his family when we repent and trust in him. And this final thing she says, an interesting image, we see him as a magnet. Think of this massive magnet for those who feel like scraps of human metal on life's junk heap, picking up the broken and abused and drawing them into his kingdom of love. May we see Jesus in the same way. And may we welcome all into his kingdom for the glory of his name. Amen.